Thank you so much. Hey, kia ora koutou. For those of you that don't know me, is Alice here. My name's Rob. Um, I see a fresh, um, some fresh faces that I haven't met, so welcome, a very warm welcome. If you don't know me, I'd love to meet with you later. For those of you that do know me, I sort of suggested this morning that some of you might be thinking, gosh, do they give anyone the microphone in this church these days? What is going on? And I said this morning again, so I, I have the same reservations. So we're all in this together. All right, so, so bear with. We'll get through this together. Um, as Alice said, we're in the smack bang in the middle of the series, This Must Be Stronger Than That. And we're currently looking, which is, has us looking at the things of culture and then looking at what Jesus says about those same things or those same aspects. The title of my talk today is... Not that. We took the side out, didn't we? There it is. Compassion must be stronger than indifference. And the teaching text we're going to teach from today is the feeding of the 5,000. So I'll read it out to you. Mark 6, 30, verse 44. The apostles then rendezvoused with Jesus and reported on all they had done and taught. Jesus said, come off by yourselves. Let's take a break and get a little rest. For there was constant coming and going. They didn't even have time to eat. So they got in the boat and went off to the remote place by themselves. Someone saw them going and, and the word got around. From the surrounding townspeople went out on foot, running, and got there ahead of them. When Jesus, Jesus arrived, he saw this huge crowd. At the sight of them, his heart broke. Like a sheep with no shepherd they were, he went right on to teach them. When his disciples thought this had gone on long enough, it was now quite late in the, in the day, and they interrupted we are a long way out in the country, and it's very late. Pronounce a benediction and send these folks off so they can get some supper. Jesus said, you do it. Fix supper for them. They replied, are you serious? You want us to spend a fortune on food for their supper? But he was quite serious. How many loaves of bread do you have? Take an inventory. That didn't take long. Five, they said, plus two fish. Jesus got them all to sit down in groups of 50 or 100. They looked like a patchwork quilt of wildflowers spread out on the green grass. He took the five loaves and two fish, lifted his face to heaven in prayer, blessed, broke, and gave the bread to the disciples. And the disciples in turn gave it to the people. He did the same with the fish. They ate their fill. The disciples gathered 12 baskets of leftovers. More than 5,000 were at the supper. So that's a well-known story. You probably all heard it. And we're going to be teaching out of that this morning. The trouble with culture. So I like to think of culture as this river. And we're all immersed in it. And what makes up that river are hundreds and hundreds of different currents that run through it. So for instance, we have the current of individualism. We have the current of consumerism, of control, of judgment, the current of inequality, the current of indifference, to name a few. The trouble is, we are all in this cultural river. We have to be. It's a world we live in. So to live in the cultural river and to live counter to those currents is super difficult. It's like swimming upstream. All right, We've all been caught in rips, or maybe you haven't been caught in rips, but we've all been caught in a current, and it's really hard to get out of. If you've been caught in a rip, oh, my apologies. Um, it's really hard to get out of. And the problem is, we can get so immersed in the river that we don't know we've been carried away. And if we do that, we just end up like this guy. Hey, oh. 
If you don't remember anything, just remember this guy, family guy. The problem is, as Christ followers, we're called to something different. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. We're called to play a part in God's kingdom. Now, God's kingdom is often referred to as the upside-down kingdom because of how much it contrasts with the world we live in. We're called to live counterculturally. Now, if you're anything like me, we can come to church gathering like this one, and you'll hear uh, a great little talk on culture. And you'll hear the word countercultural. And when you hear that, it's inside of you, well, when I hear that, I go, yep, I, I genuinely agree. We should be countercultural. I try to be countercultural. I'm not, I don't hear that and go, you know what? I disagree. My life should be living for myself and me and my family, and that's it. I should explore all the pleasures of the world, take as much as I want, and that's fine. I'm not standing here or hearing that and, and thinking that. Yet while I may not explicitly be thinking that, I can then walk out the doors and jump into my car, which at the time when I purchased it, I couldn't actually afford. Like, it was just the ba I could only afford the base model. So I wanted to spend a little bit extra money and get the fancy one because I wanted the leather seats, I wanted it slightly lowered, I wanted the, the better rims. And that, my image and what that means means a bit to me. So I thought, ah, screw it, we'll just pay the extra money, even though I didn't have it. I then drive down K Road, stop at the first set of lights, sitting there in my car, look out the window. Oh, there's, there's a homeless guy. That's so sad. Someone should do something about that. Oh, green light, bye. Go past him, down Howev to, to make my way towards the motorway. Down Howev, I get stuck in the traffic, and there's, it's going quite slowly, and there's a car trying to merge its way in. I think to myself, hmm, will I let that guy in or girl in? Closer I get, I realise, oh, it's a Tesla. No chance. If you can afford a Tesla, you can afford to wait. So, make my way down to the motor ramp, Vic Park Tunnel, get stuck behind someone going 10 kilometres slower than they should. Now, at that point, um, there's a decision I need to make. Can I shall I pass that person, even though there's paint and a sign that says I shouldn't? Or, if I don't do that, I sit behind them, get grumpy at them, say and think some awful thing that I'll never say about them if my grandma was in the car, and then at the first chance I can, I zoom past them as fast as I can, dart them a look, because that'll show them. I then proceed to go over the Harbour Bridge, and I'm singing the songs of the, of the day. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Oh, good song. I love that song. You know what? I didn't like that second song. Ugh. How many times are we going to sing that song? It's been and gone. We keep doing it. Uh, and the speaker, the speaking was good. I personally didn't get much out of it. But when they said, like, love your neighbour, I'm glad Ants was in the room, because Ants needs to hear that. I then gone all the way up onto a road to my house, where I reluctantly drive into my driveway and step in the door. I say reluctantly because it's now the afternoon and it's heading towards witching hour. Now, witching hour is when my beautiful daughters start turning into two formidable beasts that are ready to kill you. They're like talons are out, their fangs are starting to come out, and they'll just get ready to jump you because that's when the, the collision of hunger and tiredness meets. So I endure the afternoon with them, taking any opportunity I can to have a quick break, a quick like break from parenting. I sneak away and have a five-minute nap, which Alicia loves about me, by the way. And then, praise the Lord, it's 3.30. I can escape the asylum, come back over the bridge for the 4 p.m. gathering where I'm like, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. All and we do it all over again. Right. You may be thinking, why are you telling us that, Rob?
Oh, for two reasons, once I found my, my, my thing. First of all, to confirm any reservations you may have had about me speaking in the first place. Hopefully they've been confirmed. And two, more importantly, I tell you this because it's clear from my actions and my thoughts that I'm not living as counterculturally as I thought I was. And yes, while the above may have been exaggerated, my point is that we're so immersed in the culture that to live counterculturally is actually really, really difficult. And unless we're actively pursuing it, intentionally asking God to form us and shape us and shape our lives into his ways, we're going to get so absorbed into it that the only difference people see, look, see when they look at us versus a non-believer is that we attend this gathering on a Sunday. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Eugene Peterson suggests that the modern church has been so preoccupied with the truth of Jesus that they have forgotten about the way of Jesus. He says, the way of Jesus is a way that we practice and come to understand the truth of Jesus. Living Jesus in our homes and workplaces with our friends and family. You see, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. The way came first, and the way came first for a reason. If our lives are going to have any form of countercultural resemblance, we must first look to Jesus as our example of how to do this, which is what we are doing today. So, compassion must be stronger than indifference. As a way of a bit of a roadmap, we're going to look at indifference, and then we're going to, what that is, and we're going to look at compassion, and then we're going to look at three takeaways that we can learn from Jesus to hopefully help us be a more compassionate people. We're up for that? Yes. All very deathly quiet, which is worrying. Okay, what is indifference? Some bog standard dictionary definitions. Indifference is a lack of interest, concern, or empathy. So kind of like meh, whatever. Two, the absence of compulsion to or toward one thing or another. So indifference is all around us, and not all indifference is bad. I'll give you an example. If I say to Leish, hey Leish, do you want Indian for dinner tonight, or do you want Thai? And she's like, meh, oh, I don't really care either way. That's not that bad. If you're like Ford Holden, meh, I don't really care. When it comes to stuff like that, non-human things and non-living things, indifference is generally a-okay. When indifference comes to humanity, though, it's not a-okay. At the heart of it, indifference says, the things that do not affect me do not interest me. It's not my problem, therefore I'm not getting involved. Pope Francis puts it beautifully. He says, our life is made up of many things, a torrent of news of many problems. All of this leads us not to see, not to be aware of the problems of the people who are near us. Indifference seems to be medicine that protects us from involvement and becomes a way of being more relaxed. This is indifference. But this non-involvement is a way of defending our selfishness. And you see, that's a problem with indifference. It leads to non-involvement. It leads to non-engagement with people generally. Pope Francis is saying that as we get used to the status quo of the suffering that's going on around us, we get, used to it. We, we get used to it and we become immune. We no longer see it for what it is. We, know, we no, no longer view it as suffering, 
because that's the norm. That's just how the world works. And all of this indifference leads to non-involvement or non-engagement and of lack of concern because it's not affecting us. And when things aren't affecting us, it means we can hear about the death of another baby or toddler on the news and not really give it a second thought and say things like, oh, it's real, it's real New Zealand problem, that. And then get excited when the sports news comes on. Or we can walk past, like I did in my example, drive past a homeless person on the street without even making eye contact or recognising them because they're always there, that's what they do, I need to get here. Some people say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Indifference divides, it rejects, it doesn't engage with people. All it does is that it fuels loneliness, it fuels injustice and inequality. And sadly, the culture we live in is so immersed in it, we don't even know we're in it. So that's indifference. Not a pretty picture, is it? But it does get better. So if not indifference, then what? So today, I'd suggest the answer is compassion. Our English word compassion comes from the Latin word compati, which literally means to suffer with, to suffer with someone. The Greek word that we find littered throughout the Bible for compassion is splagnizomai, which literally means to be moved in one's bowels. Like we talk about having a bowel movement, bear with me, a bowel movement, because things need to turn to push things down. It's the same idea. It's the same sense of when you, you see some suffering and something inside your gut just turns, it aches. It's got that same idea. In biblical context, the bowels were thought to be the seat of pity and love. And we see this, this word, splagnizomai. Um, it's used in Mark 6.34. When Jesus arrived, he saw, he saw this huge crowd at the side of them his heart broke, or he was moved with compassion. Like sheep with no shepherd they were, he went right to work teaching them. In a modern vernacular, we would say the, we'd say the phrase, my heart broke for that person. And we could probably all relate to that feeling. When you see a tragedy, you see some suffering um, amongst you, or amongst your friends, or out in the world, and there's that ugh feeling inside. And you are, you are drawn towards that person. You're drawn towards it to... Um, and you, there's a, a strong desire to alleviate that suffering. That feeling you're feeling, that's compassion in the biblical sense. You know, when you look over all of Scripture, from Genesis all the way th um, through to Revelation, the number one emotion that God is connected with is not wrath or anger that we may think. It's actually compassion. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Christ is connected to compassion and pity more than any other emotion in all of Scripture. That should mean something to us. Here's a couple of more examples. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched them. I am willing, he said be healed. And again, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days and have had nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. 
every time Jesus used the, um, said the word um, compassion or when he talked about it in the, like in the prodigal son, he talks about the father having compassion and running towards. It's that same sense, that churning in the stomach and that, that movement towards somebody. Greg Boyle is a, a Jesuit priest who is the founder of Homeboy Industries in the States. And Homeboy Industries is the largest gang rehabilitation unit in the world. And he's got this amazing book called Tattoos of the Heart. And in it, he says, God is compassionate and loving kindness. Certainly compassion was a wallpaper of Jesus' soul, the contour of his heart. It was who he was. And all we're asked to do is be in the world who God is. Easy. So Jesus is compassion. And for Christians, Jesus models for us what true compassion looks like. So for the next wee while, we're going to look at three learnings we can take away from Jesus to help us come to grips with it, understand it, and and maybe even practice it um, a bit more effectively. Right, so the first learning. Compassion always leads to action. When we look at the biblical examples where Jesus had compassion, each of them led to an action. It led to a response, an engagement with a person or a situation. It says he was moved with compassion, so he taught them. He was moved with compassion, so he fed them. He was moved with compassion, so he gave sight to the blind. He healed the leper. He was moved with compassion. He raised the widow's dead son from the dead. Time and time again, when moved with compassion, Jesus responded with an action. He entered into people's pain and alleviated it. Henry Nowen says, Compassion asks us to go where it hurts to enter the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. And I'd like to suggest that that's the, that's the compassion we are we are called to as Christians. That's biblical compassion. That's Jesus' compassion. We're called to actively help, to engage, to actively do our best to alleviate the suffering of others. If the feelings of pity we have or feeling sorry for someone does not lead to a desire to help or to an actual helping, then more than likely what you're feeling is empathy or sympathy, which have their their rightful place. They are good things but it's not compassion in the biblical sense. So if compassion leads to action, that means that compassion is going to cost us. Compassion will cost us. We want to jump back into our teaching text and set the scene for you. So prior to where we jumped in, Jesus had sent his disciples out two by two, sent them out into the world to, to tell people to repent, repent of their sins, turn from their ways, and they also healed the sick and cast out demons. Now these, the disciples were sent out two by two, they would have been doing this for a number of days, if not months. And to make matters worse, Jesus sent them out there with only the clothes on, on their back and the shoes on their feet. He said, take no money, take no bag, and to, with the goal that you were to rely on hospitality of others to survive. 
And then to add, add a little bit more, um, a bit more another problem, another problem. They, in the while they're doing that, they heard they found out that, that John the Baptist, their friend and Jesus' relative, had been killed. He had been beheaded by King Herod. So all this is going on. All has happened, and then we pick up the story of the 5,000. They've come back together to regroup. They've come back together to rest, to share their stories, to mourn their friend. And they're tired, and they want to rest. Jesus, Jesus even says it. He says, let's come off by yourselves. Let's take a break and get a little rest. So they got in the boat and went off to a remote place by themselves. Someone saw them going, and, and word got around. From the surrounding towns, people went out on foot, running, and got there ahead of them. When Jesus arrived, he saw this huge crowd, and at the sight of them, his heart broke. He had compassion on them. Like sheep with no shepherd they were, he went right to work teaching them. You see, word had got around. The disciples had been out doing their thing. So now it's not just Jesus sending the message. It's these 12 other people as well. And Jesus is becoming like a bit of a, um, I don't know, a celebrity, for lack of a better word. And people see him as they come to try and rest. That They see him and they're like, no, teach us, teach us. In this circumstance, despite being tired, sad, and probably really over people, Jesus went right to work teaching them. His compassion cost him time and energy. And we see this with Jesus time and time again. Uh, during, the, during the first lockdown, a crew from CV got involved in providing food for the street community of the Auckland CBD. During this time, we met this amazing lady who at best you would call eccentric, at worst you would label some other label. You can take your pick. This lady is a beautiful lady. She's highly intelligent. Yet for many reasons, such as health and mental health reasons, she struggles to fit into the normal workings of society or the normal, I don't know, what we would consider normal. She views the world very differently to us and because of all this, she can be tough work to be around. Because every interaction you have with her, your sensibilities are being challenged. Despite many struggles and issues, at the heart of it, at the heart of what she's after is connection. She's after relationship, kinship, friendship. Early on, Ella and I met with her for what was meant to be an hour meeting to sort of hear how we can support her. And that hour meeting turned, to a, turned into a two and a half hour meeting because she just wouldn't stop talking and she was loving the connection and we, we couldn't bring ourselves to cut it short. Since our first interactions with her, both Ella and Alison have been meeting with her regularly, weekly. They go to her house, they take supplies, they, they pick her up and help her run her errands. Um, they even took her out for her birthday recently. They're giving up of their time and money and energy for the sake of another. And the beautiful thing about it is when you talk to Ella and Alison, while initially months back it felt like almost like a burden to do it and because it, it, it is hard work at times, that is no longer there when you, when you speak to them. There is a joy about it when you, spe when you speak to Ella about this lady. There's a joy that comes with it. They're enjoying doing what they do. I heard Ella speaking to her, I overheard her speaking to her on the phone this week and she is like she could have been speaking to any of you or her mum. Like... I wasn't listening to a person who was coming to fly in to heal the wounded, you know? She was speaking to an equal. A relationship has been formed. A friendship and a kinship has been birthed. 
Greg Boyle says, compassion isn't, <coughs> sorry, compassion isn't about feeling the pain of others. It's about bringing them in towards yourself. If we love, uh, if we love what God loves, then in compassion, margins get erased. Be compassionate as God is compassionate means dismantling the barriers that exclude. And having compassion for this amazing lady, Ella and Allison have acted. It has cost them their time and money, and sometimes their sanity. But in doing so, margins have been erased, and barriers that exclude have now been dismantled. And a friendship has been born. So it's, it's, it's going to cost us. A bit of a side note here. Let's pivot just a little bit. In the cultural river we live in, time for many is more valuable than money. So time, I would suggest, is more valuable than money. It would be easier for me to give someone $20 or $40 or $50 than to give them an hour of my time. In some respects, you like if you're speaking to like a stranger, you'd almost prefer to have the money and not spend time with them. Many of us have a sponsored child and probably don't even notice the $30, $40 automatically departing our bank account each month. I know I don't. And that's not because I'm Mr. Moneybags, but it's just because it just, just goes out of your account, right? Month after month. And then I'm reminded each year around about this time, or earlier, where we get a letter from Fund saying, hey, you've got a sponsored child. Do you want to send them a letter to say Merry Christmas or on their birthday? Our lives are busy, busy, busy. And we wear it like a, bag, a badge of honour. You've probably had the discussion with someone here today. How are you going? Oh, I'm so busy. And we talk about it as if we've got no control over that. As if like, the, the, like we're powerless to this busyness in our lives. Back to my point, our culture's response to needs is often the giving of money. Which is a great thing. Organisations like CV, we rely on the generous um, donations from the likes of yourself and everyone else who calls CV home. Other charities need it, organisations need it. But the thing is, I just want to highlight, is that when we look at Jesus, Jesus didn't give money. Jesus gave them his time, his energy, his love, his affections, and his compassion. And I'd like to suggest that to live counterculturally, to go against the grain of modern society, involves us organising our lives and schedules so that we do have time for others so that we have capacity for others. We fill our schedules up with so many things, from work to other meetings to fun, and often we, can't, we, we, we find it hard to schedule in time for our own friends and family, let alone people on the margins. So if we schedule time for people on the margins and we adjust our lives accordingly, Hopefully it would, it would enable us that so when we have these moments of, of compassion, of feeling deep pity for someone, we have the capacity to turn that into compassion and turn that into an action. All right, you with me? I know it's quite heavy stuff, eh? But it's, it's real stuff, and this is, this is Jesus stuff. And as Christ followers, um, we have to be able to have these conversations. Third point, proximity matters. It's the third learning from Jesus. I'd like to break this up into two aspects. 
First is this. Jesus placed himself amongst the people who were in desperate need of compassion. We see time and time again, Jesus placed himself within the vicinity and the company of others who were on the fringes of society, be they tax collectors, be they widows, prostitutes, lepers, the poor. In 2011, Alicia and I moved to, we moved to London, and I, we had the opportunity to hear Shane Claiborne speak. I got dragged along. I didn't even want to go. I was like dragging my feet and being a, a suki baba. But um, I reluctantly went, which thank the Lord I did because when I heard him speak, it transformed my life, which I'll talk to you about another time. But one of the lines he said was this. He said, the problem is not that Christians don't care about the poor. It's that they don't know the poor. The problem is not that Christians don't care about the poor. It's that they don't know the poor. He highlighted the differentiation between the people who Jesus placed himself amongst compared to the people that many Christians place themselves amongst or don't place themselves amongst. Man, when I first heard this, it knocked me for six, like a big smack right in the guts, because he nailed me. I've grown up a Christian my whole life, and generally, up until that point, I'd surrounded my, myself with people who looked like me, who spoke like me, who sounded like me, who smelt like me, all the same. I, no one challenged me. No one, um, I didn't get repulsed by anyone or like, oh, like I was generally surrounding myself with people just like myself. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that we all need to give up what we're doing, move to Calcutta and be the next Mother Teresa. I'm not saying that at all. Mother Teresa herself said, Calcutta's are everywhere if only we have eyes to see. And I know many of you have lives where you give and care for others on a daily basis. Being it caring for your own children or other people's children, be it in your vocation as a nurse, a teacher, a doctor, or a not-for-profit worker, etc. And I know for those of you that have jobs where you are part of businesses whose sole purpose is to make a profit, you're a light in that place. And the people you interact with need Jesus, they need love, and they need compassion. I'm not saying we need to get rid of that. What I am saying is that often the people who are in desperate need of compassion, just like in the first century, are on the fringes of society and therefore don't get to experience it because society tends to throw them out there and leave them. Society doesn't reel them back in. And I wonder what it would look like if more and more Christ followers got to know some of these people, spend time with them, Loved, loved them, gave them their affections, had compassion on them. What could that do? A while back during the street feed, one of our team was talking to this lady. And this lady was sharing her story with our, our, our um, volunteer. And hearing, our volunteer, upon hearing that story, she said, she asked her, she said, oh, would you, would you like a hug? Now, this is a stranger, right? Would you like a hug? And the lady said, yes, I would. So, so they hugged. And at that moment, the lady who had shared her story just started crying and crying and crying. Afterwards, they sort of parted ways, which you need to do, otherwise it gets super awkward. And, and the lady who has been hugged and crying informed about our team member that she hadn't been hugged like that in five years. 
No one had shown her affection in five years. Now, what is that to do to a person? Like if that were you and I, if we didn't have that, um, that physical connection, that caring touch in five years, what is that to do to a person? What is that to do to their self-worth, their value? So while, yes, every single person around us and near us and who look like us, they deserve compassion and the love of Jesus just as much as everyone else, no doubt. But there are some in society who have a less chance of receiving it and are in desperate need of it. And if the church isn't going to place themselves in those situations, well, who is? If it's Christ followers who, Jesus Christ, who made his whole life about the poor, and then if, if we don't do it, who's, who's going to pick up the mantle? Who's going to be out there? The second aspect, second and final aspect, you're like, feel, is surely it has to start locally. This is about proximity. Surely it has to start locally. We now live in a world where we can find out the results of the American election at the exact same time as those in America. A tragedy happens somewhere in the world, and in an, in an instance, instant, we know about it at the same time. We hear about it as it's unfolding. We can order something from the UK and have it here in a couple of days. We're connected to other parts of the world more than we have ever been, and this level of connection is only going to increase. The speed and level of connection is by and large a great thing and has many benefits. However, the flip side is that we can get so focused on what is happening out there in the world that we can forget or miss the suffering and the tragedies that are happening right here in our own land of Aotearoa. I'll give you an example. We see the complete and utter tragedy of the death of George Floyd in America. We see the Black Lives Matter uh, Matters movement. We see the public outcry. We see the protests, and rightly so. What happened to him was, was horrific. We are so connected that we we so connected that in New Zealand we find out about it as it's happening in the states. This causes Kiwis to join in the American outcry. We even have a Black Lives Matter protest in Auckland in Altea Square. Social media is going off after comment after comment. This is not okay. Da, 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 da. And that's all good. That's right. We should join in the out outrage. But here's my wondering. I wonder if those same New Zealanders who are down in Altair Square protesting or taking to social media to condemn it were also informing themselves about or getting, in, getting amongst what is happening out at Ihu Matau. I wonder if they're doing that. And some of them might be, which is awesome. You see, New Zealand has its own history of minorities being unfairly treated, taken advantage of and exploited. So surely if we're going to look further afield as to what's going on in America, we must first look at the similar atrocities and the, the similar things that are happening right here in our land first. While Jesus lived in a very different time to ours, so it's quite hard to draw a direct connection, it's worth noting that Jesus tended to the needs and situa situations, I'm messing up that word today, situations that arose right in front of him in the moment. He tended, to, he tended to whoever was in front of him, wherever he was at the time. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. 
Yes, we should care about what is happening in other parts of the world. But if that means we're not engaging with the stuff that's happening in Aotearoa, something's not quite right. There's a disconnect. So, you're all deathly quiet. Whereas I'm sitting here going, oh, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Time will tell. I said this morning you can send any complaint emails to alicia at centralvineyard.org and she'll give you a lovely pastoral-hearted response. Um, <laughs> so to wrap up, compassion always leads to action. Compassion will cost us and proximity matters. Compassion must be stronger than indifference. So how do we do this? How do we grow in our compassion for others? How do we see people through the same lens as Jesus did? It cannot be a matter of just trying harder. This will only feel like pressure, and just like so many New Year's resolutions, it will fall by the wayside. It has to start with inviting God to transform us, inviting him to open our eyes and to see like he does, inviting him to open our eyes to where our own lifestyles are getting in the way or hindering us from the Jesus way. So, so to wrap up, I love Ants. Could you come, come up, man? There's a you were, may have noticed we sung this old school song today. Well, it's old school. It's 2007 a song called Hosanna, and it's a banger, right? Who heard that? It was like yes, a couple. People were like yes, it was me. I asked the team to do it because it encapsulates a prayer that I want us to engage with. And it's the bridge that says, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. As I walk from earth into eternity. So we're going to engage with this. We're going to have a moment of reflection and communion together. Before we do that, it's got the logistical side of actually grabbing the, the elements. So we've got a table here, one, two, three. If you could now go and, and grab your, the, wine, or the wine, juice and bread and then come back and have a seat, that would be awesome. And then we'll get into this. But in this moment, I'd love for you to remember the love and compassion that Christ had, the same love and compassion that took him to the cross for us. So I'd love for you to remember that. And upon remembering that, I'd love for you to ask the question, what does it look like to be a compassionate person, a compassionate Christ follower? And this is, we're not doing this together, we're doing this individually, it's between, it's between you and God. What do I need to change in my heart, in my lifestyle, so I can reflect that talked about today and I'd love for this if you could to make it your prayer if you're willing would you make this your prayer as we sit here um, if you're not at that stage where you're like I don't want to make that my prayer maybe your prayer is God I want that to be my prayer I want to have a heart for others I want to be able to do this but I just, I'm just not there yet and maybe that's your prayer
So we ask that you do that, God. Lead the way for us. In Jesus' mighty name.